So right before um, I was hired on here, approximately two years ago, I started having these series of dreams. And uh, through some prayer and intercession and through some friends of mine who I confess these dreams to, we, come, we came to the conclusion that these dreams were warning dreams. And they were telling me about generational things that I struggled with, that my family struggled with, that I would have to come to a place of breaking those things off in order to move deeper into a more intimate relationship with the Father. And so I started to do uh, the work that was necessary uh, to make that happen, not that you work to get any more affirmation or love from the Father, but you work hard to break off the things that separate you and Him, right? So that's what I started to do. And um, in this dream there was a house. And this house represented something uh, specific. Like behind the doors of this house, I remember in the dream, not even wanting to go up the stairs to approach this house. And sometimes, uh, it's a reoccurring dream, and sometimes even just the thought in my dream of approaching that house, I would wake up. And are you guys familiar with a term called sleep perilous? So it's like when your consciousness wakes up and the rest of your body is still asleep. It's a pretty scary thing. On several occasions, this would happen. And this house would represent like this evil entity that existed, and I would have to eventually walk through the threshold of this place to end the generational things uh, that I would be dealing with. It's pretty intense. And one day I was, uh, we were at a staff meeting off location at um, someone's house, and I was supposed to speak at an FCS at Ledford High School. And so I left early from that lunch, and I was driving down a road road that I'd never been down before. Uh, I'm not even sure that I'll get the road names correct, but I'm pretty sure that I was on Mock Road, and I was getting ready to take a hard right onto this road, Johnson Road. And on the corner of that street, there's this old, white, Victorian-looking house. And that house was the exact house that was in my dream. And I got so physically disturbed that I like pulled over and almost got sick. To the very detail, that was the place. Just a very interesting time. In another scenario, uh, a friend of mine, uh, he asked me to come to his house and pray uh, with him and his wife because he was just, Dean was very phlegmatic. He was very nonchalant about this conversation. And he said, hey, man, uh, just in passing, he was like, I want you to come over to my house. Uh, My wife has been experiencing these headaches and these sicknesses, and I was just wondering if you would want to come over and pray with us. And I was like, sure, man, I'd love to. So a friend of mine, Mark, who I did a lot of ministry with uh, during that season, we agreed to meet at my friend's house, and we were going to pray for his wife over these afflictions. Well, uh, uh, they lived in this place called Adams Farm. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that over in Greensboro, but we arrived in the cul-de-sac that they lived in. I got there before Mark. I pulled up into their driveway. When I pulled up into the driveway, there was a light on in their garage. The garage door was open. Uh, their door was open. They had a glass storm door. You could see the light on inside their living room, and the porch light was on. It was very well lit up. So I opened the door to my 2016 Kia Optima. I was bad to the bone. I opened the door and I put my foot out on their driveway and all of those lights turn off. And I'm like, huh. I'm looking around. All the other houses, their lights are on. 
So I take my foot off of the driveway and put it back in the car and close the door. And I just sit there until Mark gets there. So he comes rolling up in his Mini Cooper. We were really quite the show. He comes pulling up and gets out. At this point, the light in the living room had been turned back on. We walk inside and we start with some casual conversation. And there's some pizza sitting on the table for us. And she said, I uh, had really wanted to cook you guys a meal uh, but as I was starting to get ready earlier in the day, I was just overcome by this heavy physical sickness. And it was so debilitating that I couldn't even uh, get up to make you guys anything. So this is what we have. And so after about 45 minutes of uh, inquisitive conversation, what we had found out was that... So this lady was from uh, Venezuela. And there, there's a certain practice that happens sometimes. Like Obviously, Catholicism is big in that culture. But what happens is sometimes the Catholic priests will also start intermingling their doctrine with witchcraft. And so there's these witch priests, if you will, who try to uh, operate out of the basis of Catholicism and uh, dark, whatever you want to call it. So her mother had taken her to see one of these people and to have her life blessed by this person. Well... Blessing was the opposite of what happened uh, for this lady. And from that point on, from the time she was eight onward, she had experienced like this physical uh, oppression. And so I want to save you all the details. I don't want to romanticize it in the way that Hollywood would do. But after about an hour of intense prayer, the issue was resolved. So uh, last but not least, another uh, crazy scenario that I dealt with was um, early on in my counseling internship, uh, I had to write like a pretty intense project uh, on any topic that I wanted to. And I was in the school library and I came across this old book uh, and the title of it was Counseling and the Demonic. I was like, well, this seems interesting. So I started to write my project on that. And ironically, at the same time, uh, there was this, acquaintance of mine who I was kind of counseling, kind of not, and uh, I had a coffee scheduled with him, and I met him, and his behavior was incredibly unusual compared to all my past experiences with him. Uh, His demeanor and his language and the things that he was saying uh, almost had an element of malice to it. I was like, well, this is just really out of character for this guy. And so the synopsis of this particular project is um, in regards to mental illness, what of it could be medical and what of it could be spiritual. And so it just goes through this process of elimination of, well, if you try this and this and this and it doesn't work, then it's probably this. But if you try this, this, and this and it doesn't work, then it's probably this. So it's very practical. But I remember reading about how if you're dealing with something demonic, you can actually, in authority, ask for it to identify itself. And I'm sitting here having a conversation with this person, and I have some speculation and some suspicion. And I'm like, surely, like, I'm not thinking about going down this road. I'm getting ready to ask this question in a semi-public setting where anyone can hear me. Do you know how stupid I feel right now. So, I'm just an unusual enough guy to kind of roll the dice on these situations. 
And so I look at this guy in the eyes and I say, who am I speaking to right now? And immediately the embarrassment starts to sit in, right? And this mug looks at me in the eye and he says, I know this guy's name and what he said was not his name. And he said, I am the spirit of the snake. I was like, freak. I've already gone through the doorway now. I got to finish. And this guy proceeds to bring up every mistake and embarrassment and shortcoming that I've ever done that no one even knows about me. And it just confirmed. I was like, this mug, I'm dealing with a demon right now. Like, for real. You can't even make this stuff up. So, the scenarios that I just rattled off to you guys, uh, they may seem a little bit mystical and mysterious in nature. But there are real scenarios that happened, and they're all motivated by the same entity. But there's also other scenarios that are motivated by this entity that are uh, more common in our society, probably more acceptable. So if you had uh, trouble wrapping your mind around those particular things, maybe these will be a little bit easier. So uh, one of my old clients who was 12, 12, was consumed with so much anger that the reason that he came to see me is it was court-ordered because he has stabbed his cousin in the stomach. I have seen restaurants that serve the most delicious food close because their owners didn't pay their taxes. I have seen the most passionate and compassionate pastors in their life too early by committing suicide. I have seen business owners who have so much wealth serve jail time because the money that they had was not enough, but they needed to have some of the company's money too. I've seen families destroyed overnight because of decisions that a child or a spouse or a parent makes. Those are all two real scenarios that happen, we see in the news every single day. And whether they are common or mystical in nature, they're all motivated by the same entity and by the same spirit. And so there's something in the atmosphere that is having an influence and a motivation on these things. I want you to think about your own atmospheres. Where are you at the most? Your home, with your family, your job, your social groups, whatever your platform of influence is, your daily interaction with people that you don't even know. Those are all atmospheres that you get involved in on a daily basis. So just take a quick mental evaluation of what those things look like. Are they atmospheres where freedom and encouragement are the lifestyle? Is that's what's shifting the atmosphere where you are? Or are your atmospheres somewhat similar or on the verge of the earlier scenarios that I mentioned? I know for a fact for the past two years that I've been here, we have pioneered and been very thorough about expressing a vision of freedom that is possible by knowing your identity, 
and a revival that is made possible around reconciliation. But take an evaluation of where you currently might be, despite that truth. So, either revival is happening, and we've done a terrible job at recognizing it and documenting it, or there's some elements in the atmosphere that is keeping us from it. So the elements that I'm talking about, the elements that keep us from living a life that Christ died and resurrected for are fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. Those are three major things that generationally we have all dealt with that have sidelined us from an inheritance that is rightfully ours, made possible by Christ. Fear and lies have a crippling partnership. And those intangible elements, the only reason that they have stability in our lives is because we've made a foundation for them. The foundation that we've built is completely made up of things that we believe that aren't ever that were never true and aren't true now. A foundation of lies. That's how fear and anxiety and hopelessness even exist is because they partner and attach themselves to things that aren't even true, but we just accept them to be true. I think the biggest lie that we believe that fosters fear, anxiety, and hopelessness is the lie of self-preservation. This is where I've been the past several months just camped out in this idea. And it's crazy how when God wants you to notice something, how he'll just put you somewhere and, to, and you just start seeing it. It's kind of like when you decide you want a new car. All of a sudden, you start seeing that car everywhere. Everybody's got this car. Why don't I have it? If they can get this car, then surely I can get this car. Right? So think about it, the lie of self-preservation. Think about how many decisions that we make on a daily basis that are totally contingent on how it will affect our resources. Think of all the promises that the Father gives us that we completely refuse because what he's asking us to do will infringe on what we have or our own agenda. Ooh, man, it's getting heavy in here. We're going to go a little farther, though. Think of all the times we say, I can't do this because of my money or my time or my happiness, my sanity, my family, my influence, my control, my food, my clothes. All the while you are building a sense of security in your own life. And what it's doing is totally blinding you and keeping you from the upgraded life that the Lord has for you. The lie of self-preservation and the motivation of fear, anxiety, and hopelessness has ruined what could be a perfect relationship with the Father for generations. So take a look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 25 through 34. And within this portion of Scripture, what Jesus is teaching us, he is showing us that there is both a truth and a warning both a promise and a warning within what he's trying to teach us here. 
starts out by saying this. It says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? I want you to notice that he's just covered all the things that we just talked about. Food, clothes, time. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That word little meaning brief. How many times have we prayed for something today and then given up on it tomorrow? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't believe in Jesus, is what he's speaking to here in this time, seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Before I move any farther, just a, almost like a side note or a tangent, this word seek in verse 33 is translated into the word desire. So what he's saying here is desire first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so what Jesus is teaching us here, he's saying, hey, my dad and your dad, God, he's making a promise to us. And he's saying that if your desire and his desire are the same, that equation equals provision. But if your desire and his desire are not the same, then that equation equals fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. It's a very clear-cut picture. It's very black and white. There's no gray in that. As a society of Christians, we've got to quit dancing around the, the bush, beating around the bush, and start seeing things for how they really are. Hey, my dad and your dad... Is your provision. If your desire and his desire are the same, then you will be provided for. If your desire is for anything else, you will find yourself wanting. Notice in Psalm 23 how it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So if he's not your shepherd, you will be in wanting, right? That's a clear promise. You'll always find yourself wanting, always wondering if you'll ever be satisfied. That type of thinking produces Fear, anxiety, and hopelessness. If self-provision is your pursuit, and fear, anxiety, and hopelessness are the product of your life, 
How will people even know who God is? The way you live testifies to the promises and to the reality of God. John 13, 34 through 35 says this, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you also must love one another. By this, listen, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you're always looking out for yourself and you're chronically worried, you are actually demonstrating a lifestyle that is the same of those who don't even believe in Jesus. Whew. Gosh, man, I got punched in the stomach when I came to this realization. It gets better, trust me. That's not drab. It's just real. So how do we get out of this long-lived mess that we've been in for who knows how long? I think there is a pivot point, a contingency that is particularly on this word that's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. It says, seek first the kingdom, desire first the kingdom. I think what happens, the way we even got ourselves into this mess, is that our desire just got off a click. We were hardwired for a certain desire, but somehow that changed. Maybe we just got a little distracted. More than likely what happened is the evidence or perceived evidence of our situations and scenarios showed up. And they started telling us how things were supposed to be and how they really are. But our situations and our circumstances, they lie to us every single day. So desire gets off a little bit. I've said this earlier. If the kingdom of God is your desire, then provision and peace is the outcome. If money, food, clothes, sex, influence, girls, guys, acceptance, control, or anything that's not God is your desire, then the outcome is anxiety, fear, and hopelessness. And do you struggle with any of those three things? And if you do, I love to ask questions. That's how you get places. You just start asking questions. So you ask this question, God, I need you to reveal to me what my top most burning desire is. That question only works if you're willing to be honest with yourself, by the way. And so whatever answer you give, don't let it produce guilt or shame because the Holy Spirit likes to expose and then fix things. That's how it works. So when you answer that question honestly, the epiphany will happen. And you'll say, oh, well, I struggle with one, if not all of these three things, and this is why. And the Lord's like, man, finally, you're honest. Now we can get somewhere. And the life just starts to get better from then out. So a desire gets misguided. But the way that it got there and the way that it changes actually happens the exact same way. A change in your desire and a change in your belief are strict partnership. So let me say that again. If you want to change your desire, you have to change what you believe. It's crazy. Um, 
the lack of desire that I see in people to read the word. Every one of us in here probably knows someone like that. If it's not someone you know, it might be you. I have to raise my hand and say that I've gone two, three, maybe four weeks without ever opening this up, but just trying to survive on what I knew about it. That leaves a burnout, in case you wanted to know. But the reason there's not a desire to read it is why would I have a desire to read something that I didn't believe? But people will adamantly confess that I believe everything this says. But we all know people who will go and read even just this very scripture that we read earlier in Matthew chapter 6. And they will see the real simple equation in there. And they'll read that and they'll say that they believe it. And they'll close it and they'll walk away. And they'll still believe that their fear and anxiety and hopelessness are contingent on a situation or a scenario. And that's disbelief. That's unbelief. God, can you help us with our unbelief? So, if changing our desire is contingent on changing what we believe, how do we change what we believe? One would think that this is a really long and drawn out process. But I don't think that the Lord, our dad, as good as he is, had intended for this to be a real complicated process. If you want to change from believing things that are not true, believing a lie, to believing the truth, you just have to choose to. It's not hard. Well, it is hard, actually. But it's not complicated. Every single one of us have thoughts that are in our mind right now. Thousands of them, probably. And the product of your life is based on which one of those thoughts you believe to be true and which one of those thoughts you believe to be untrue. And what will you notice as you start to filter through all the thoughts that are in your mind right now, as you make decisions about what's true and what's not, you'll either find yourself in the bondage of life or in the freedom of life. It doesn't get any more clear-cut than that. So option one is a lie, and option two is the truth. And you just choose to believe which one is true. Every time I try to work on my marriage, it gets worse. There is no point. God causes everything to work for the good of those who love him. One is a lie, the other is a truth. And you actually get to choose which one is the truth. And that will determine your attitude and your outcome. I'm lonely and no one cares about me. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. One is a lie, the other is a truth. And all you have to do is choose which one is the truth. I'm terrible at relationships. 
the promise in Luke 2.52 is that like Jesus, we prosper in all our relationships. One is not true. The other is. And there's, no, there's nothing magical about it. You choose to believe which one is the truth. And one will set you free, and the other one will enslave you. Every single thought in your mind right now is either a lie or the truth. Whatever you choose to believe about each one of those thoughts will either put you in bondage or let you live freely. So, you guys, recall your knowledge of Genesis right now. And think about the fall of mankind as it labels it. Adam and Eve, they had a very poor outcome. They made a very bad decision. But sin was not yet in the world. And they did not make a bad decision because they were bad people. The only thing you need for a terrible outcome is a free will and a lie. And they were presented with the option to choose. They could either believe what God had said or they could believe what Satan had said. And what happens is they goofed up and they just simply believed what Satan had said, the father of lies, over the father of truth. And then you see what kind of result that equation gets us. So, that was pretty comprehensive an exhaustive explanation of why maybe we are in the position we're in and why fear, anxiety, and hopelessness is reigning over us right now. A strict oppression. But you weren't designed to be that way. You weren't created to be that way. I believe that the Lord is bringing up a new generation of people. You, I'm looking at all of you, and myself in the mirror. He's bringing us into a new time. Where struggle in here is not even in the vocabulary. Because what we have thought for so long is that these things in life, they happen to us. And we're getting oppressed. But do you know how difficult it is to take new territory? There's a bit of struggle in it. I want you to think, visualize in your mind right now a a map, like a world map. And I want you to erase off of that map the names of the continents. And I want you to replace those names of the continents with things like divorce and cancer and depression and pain and sickness. Those are territories of the enemy. And if we find ourselves there, it's not because we did anything bad. It's not because something is happening to us. We find ourselves in these territories because we were designed to destroy them. Scripture is very clear on this. We're actually made to take that territory. The word tells us that the way that the kingdom is advanced is forcefully. That wasn't even in my notes. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, it says, for, we, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So in the name of simplicity, I want to shed light on a couple of things that make it possible for us to choose to believe truth instead of lies. Ephesians makes it clear that our war is intangible in nature and it's against evil. 2 Corinthians makes it clear that the intangible war is against our mind and that the lies we believe come in the form of thoughts and speculations and lofty things. Some translations will say arguments instead of speculations. It's the same thing. I'm going to do a little non uh, rhetorical feedback question here. You have to be honest about this answer. It's going to seem outlandish, but you'll be surprised at how many people are on the same page as you. So you're a person who um, is not depressed. You're just your average Joe or Joette. And you're riding down the road in your car. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this random thought enters your mind. And it sounds something like this. I should just run my car into this tree. Has anyone ever had something crazy come across their mind like that? Yep couple people where do you think that comes from the enemy this is the thoughts that second corinthians is identifying random thoughts that cause calamity the word says that the enemy comes to steal kill and destroy thoughts speculations speculations are lies that prey on your fears these lies are meant to lead you into bondage How many of you have been somewhere and you get that random text from a friend or a spouse or your kid and you know the contents of that opening statement is going to lead into an argument. And so on the drive home, you already start formulating this defense in your mind and you're already figuring out how this argument is going to go and how you're going to come on top. This is called speculation. And it's a tactic of the enemy. We think we know people, but really only the Lord does. Finally, lofty things. Lofty things are philosophies that make us feel like the devil is big and powerful and that God is small and powerless. When something bad happens, we immediately throw our hands up and say, well, all I can do is pray about this. That's a lofty thing. It's important for you to know that because now you're aware of what Thoughts in your mind are probably influenced by the enemy. That's one part of the puzzle of knowing how to choose truth. We destroy these lies, thoughts and speculations and lofty things by taking them captive and making them obedient. And that's called discernment. Discernment allows you to know what thoughts are from the enemy and what thoughts are from the Father. 
Philippians 1, 9 through 10 says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Look at that again. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Discernment is a gift from God's Holy Spirit. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then it is a gift that has already been given to you. I don't think it's a better time than now than to use it. I think it's time we start to put in the work. We're in it a little early. It's 10.06. There's going to be some musicians who are on the stage and they're going to create a really good atmosphere for us. Scott's going to come up here and he's going to close us out. And he's going to lead us into a time of invitation. And you have an opportunity to respond in deep prayer. And it's time to break off and eliminate some of the things that you've been believing for maybe even years that are not true.